Back to throw Fitzpatrick. Throwing high into the air. Got it. Parker, touchdown. What a win for this Miami Dolphin team. Wow. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins official podcast network covering your Miami Dolphins. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, Pro Day season is underway. We'll talk about the workouts at Auburn, Miami's presence there, and what it takes to be a Miami Dolphin under Coach Flores, plus Miami's enviable draft position, Chris Greer's impressive draft record, and the Dolphins' inclusion among the better drafting teams in football. And we'll wrap it up with a mock draft roundup, taking a look at some recent mock drafts published by Daniel Jeremiah and Chad Reuter of NFL.com and Josh Norris of Roto World. All of that and much, much more on this Monday, March the 9th edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. And it is pro day season across the National Football League and college football landscape. And so the Dolphins coaching, personnel, and scouting staffs are putting in their final prep work on this year's draft class, which is now just a little more than six weeks away, six weeks from Thursday until Vegas when Sin City becomes Finn City. And the most recent stop on that schedule was in Alabama for the Auburn Pro Day and the Tigers 8-8 teen draft hopefuls at that pro day. You gotta love the Blue Blood programs providing the NFLs with crazy, crazy numbers of NFL products and draft day hopefuls. And among those 18 players were six players that are currently on the Draft Network's top 100 big board. And I think the story of this workout, though, was Miami's extended work on the whiteboard and the classroom aspect of things, putting players through that classroom session to see how the player can apply specific lessons to the on-field drills and how well do they retain information and apply it on game day, or in this case, a simulated game day in what is a pro day workout, a practice type of atmosphere. But all in all, you want to measure the player's aptitude for the ability to apply this information on the football field, because if we go back to the Christian Wilkins article from Friday, or really any media availability that you've heard from Brian Flores and Chris Greer, it's always the same message. Tough, smart, disciplined players, players that want to be great, players that love and prioritize the game, and players who are willing to make the sacrifices necessary to realize their potential. And I think the Dolphins did a great job last year of establishing the example you want to have put forth for the type of players that are going to be here long term, for the type of players that are going to earn second contracts and be the example for what they want the young guys and the rest of the guys that come here to look like on the practice field, in the locker room, in the classroom. We've heard Jesse Davis talk about it. He got an extension. We heard Eric Rowe talk about how you have to be wired a certain way to play for this coaching staff and this regime, and it's tough, and it's not for everybody out there, and that's how Flores wants it. And we saw that last year with the Wilkins drafting, the ultimate embodiment of what kind of player Brian Flores wants in Miami. This quote from the MiamiDolphins.com piece by yours truly, quote, he's got an energy, he's got a life to him, Flores said. At the same time, he has a poise and workmanlike demeanor. He works his butt off football is important to him. So just as we talked about on the Thursday edition of the Drive Time Podcast, Flores and Greer are going to tell you what they want, what they believe in, and their core principles at these media availabilities, just as Flores did here. And that, of course, extends beyond Flores' time in Miami. And I think the most telling testimony about Flores when he got hired by the Dolphins was his former Patriots players that spoke about him during the honoring of the coach at the YMC's Legend Ball. Flores was recognized as the newest legend of the organization integration initiative the legends ball there 
Just a really special and a really cool cause they have out there. But Rob Ninkovich, Matthew Slater, and Devin McCourty all presented Flores with the award, which quite obviously speak to the impact that he has on his players. But there was one thing that McCourty said about Flores that always kind of resonated with me. But first, the quote from Matthew Slater that I think sets up that comment by McCourty very well. Here's what Slater had to say, quote, I think any man who's played for you, talking about Flores, and anyone who knows you certainly feels like they're a better person having been around you. Everyone in here, I just want you to know this man is such a genuine human being and it's more about the man tonight. And McCordy would later talk about Flores' loving and demanding nature, how it's kind of a yin and yang, a pull and push in terms of what Flores has to do to get the most out of his players on the football field. And the genuine personality that Slater refers to demonstrates how much Flores cares for his guys, but that's not what makes a great football coach. It's part of the equation, but not the entire equation. And the rest of that recipe that makes a good football coach is pairing that genuine nature with a demanding aspect that holds guys accountable. It's how you lead a room. It's how you get guys to buy in. And we heard about that from several players. Even Christian Wilkins talked about it. As the year went along, more and more guys began to buy into Brian Flores. And that kind of coincided with the Dolphins turning things around both on the scoreboard, in the standings, and just general perception of the team. So as coach told us in Indianapolis at the scouting combine, they have an idea for the talent of these players coming up in this year's draft based upon the film. And Flo even said that what you guys, the media, have seen is what we have seen as well. We all watch the same college football games, but now this part of the process, these pro days and these meetings are an opportunity to get to know these players to see if they have what it takes to be that smart, tough, disciplined player, to see how much football does matter to them, to see if they have what it takes to be a Miami Dolphin in 2020. And the last note here on the Auburn Pro Day, you had Derek Brown, Nick Coe, and Marlon Davidson, all defensive linemen, Prince Tega Wanagu, and Jack Driscoll on the offensive line. Those guys did not work out, and the only one of the Draft Network's top 100 list that did work out was cornerback Noah Igbinogany, and that was the first take, by the way, right there. I got that recording in, got the name, nailed it. And he checked in with a 40-inch vertical, a better than 10.5-foot broad jump, and a 4.4740. He also ran a 4.49, but you take the first time, obviously, the best time. The 4.4740, great numbers in general, but especially for a player that plays as physically as Igbinogany plays at that cornerback position. And I threw that in there because I didn't have a proper segue into this next segment. I want to talk more about the draft and we'll jump right into that right here. And let's go ahead and utilize the compensatory draft picks and pending announcement as our segue into the article up on MiamiDolphins.com. So still no comp picks handed out just yet, but according to Nick Corte of OverTheCap.com and his sole job when it comes to writing football is projecting compensatory picks and his track record is phenomenal. So according to Corte, the Dolphins are looking at a fourth rounder and a seventh round draft pick in addition to the current draft capital they already have here in Miami. So the draft capital just keeps going up, going up, and going up. And that's the focus of our piece up on MiamiDolphins.com right now, written again by yours truly. And this article idea was really born from a quote that I heard on the Move the Sticks podcast. Of course, one of my favorite resources and podcasts is to reference here on the Drive Time podcast. They had Howie Roseman, the executive of the Philadelphia Eagles, 
the Super Bowl winning general manager of the Philadelphia Eagles and him talking about the idea of accumulating draft picks and how there is basically a lottery involved when it does come to the draft and giving yourself more bites at the apple, giving yourself more lottery tickets gives you a better chance to win that lottery ultimately. So here's a quote from Howie Roseman. Because the guys who are really good at the draft, if you're hitting on 60% of your first round picks, that's a pretty good track record. And then it's dropping as you go through the round. So Really, the more chances you get, the more tickets to the lottery you get, uh, really the better you should be doing. And so with that in mind, the Dolphins do own the most draft picks this year in 2020 and are tied for the most picks currently in 2021. Of course, a long time to go until that draft comes around. But additionally, the Dolphins have 11 picks combined in the first three rounds over these next two draft classes. And that is by far, far and away, the most premium capital of any team out there. And Dolphins owner Stephen Ross proclaimed this past offseason his desire for a consistent contender that avoids the flash in the pan and a team that can sustain success year to year. And you look around the league and there aren't many teams that have that in their back pocket because there are plenty of examples of teams that show up for just one year and then go back to being a non-playoff team the next year. It is difficult to sustain success in this league. So the handful of teams that have done it pretty much have one thing in common. And we start here with the Eagles, whose plan materialized with a Lombardi trophy in that 2017 season. And they continued that success the next two years, putting together three consecutive postseason trips from 2017 to 2018 and again in 2019. And the usual suspects for January football achieved that level of sustained success through controlling the draft. And the Eagles' Super Bowl parade came at the conclusion of that 2017 season. But the year prior, Roseman made a blockbuster trade to secure the second overall draft pick to get their quarterback, Carson Wentz. But the Eagles entered that year's draft with 11 selections. And they also participated in a combined six trades the last two years, 2015 and 2016, that involved draft picks. On the other side of the country, you had the Seahawks, who won a Super Bowl after the 2013 season and came within one yard, the famous Mar- Marshawn Lynch non-handoff, the Malcolm Butler interception, which by the way, Coach Flores called Butler onto the field for that particular call. But the Seahawks, upon Pete Carroll's arrival in 2010, made nine draft picks that year. And from that year through the second Super Bowl appearance in 2014, so a five-year stretch, never made less than nine picks and they averaged 9.6 picks per year. So with all that draft capital, the Seahawks developed an identity that produced four consecutive league-leading scoring defenses. That's pretty unprecedented. In fact, it is unprecedented. Earl Thomas, Richard Sherman, Cam Chancellor, Bobby Wagner, and Super Bowl 48 MVP Malcolm Smith were all added to the Seahawks roster during that stretch of draft hauls. You've got Baltimore and Pittsburgh, two of the league's more consistent contenders annually. The Ravens averaged 9.4 draft picks the last five years, 8.9 draft picks since 2010, and the Steelers going back over that 10-year period average 8.3 draft picks per year over that last decade then of course you've got the Patriots pro football focus provided a stat that tracks expected resources in a given offseason compared to the actual capital acquired and spent and the Patriots typically picking towards the back end of the first round have to get creative with their draft day maneuvering to put them far above the team's expected draft capital and this all comes from a study done by at PFF underscore Moo on Twitter, where he looked at teams' recent draft success and how much more capital they had than what they should have had in terms of player production based upon where they drafted. And I want to come back to that study and that graphic here real quick. But first, 
I want to go back to a different era of the National Football League and one that includes the Dolphins in terms of this further historical evidence of acquired draft capital producing a winning product on the field. You go back to 1996 through 1998, and the Dolphins in those three years made 36 selections over that three-year period, an average of 12 per year. And like any draft class, you're going to have some misses, you're going to have some solid contributors, but the Dolphins in this case, with more bites at the apple, were able, like the Seahawks a couple years back, were able to establish that identity and produce a core that led to seven consecutive winning seasons and five playoff bursts and a defense that basically was top 10 or top five, even in the top one and two a couple years annually. And it started with Jason Taylor, a first ballot Hall of Fame selection, Zach Thomas, who for my money should be in the Hall of Fame already, but for now we'll call him a finalist for the Hall of Fame. And cornerbacks Patrick Sertan and Sam Madison combined for seven Pro Bowls and three first team All-Pro selections here in Miami. So those four guys were gathered in those three draft classes to give the Dolphins that core defense. And also in that group, although he never made a Pro Bowl, again, another snubbing here for the Dolphins, Daryl Gardner was included in that class as well. So five really cornerstone pieces to that Dolphins defense, which basically turned out to be an annual playoff contender and an annual top team, which later, and this isn't in the article, but it's a thought that I had, later allowed Miami to be more aggressive in their pursuit of finding a guy that could put that team over the top like Ricky Williams. And they traded all that draft capital to go get Ricky. And the first year there in Miami, what a beautiful compliment he was to that great defense with over 1,850 yards and 16 touchdowns. He was the ultimate cog in that machine, and I'll forever argue that 2002 Dolphins team was as talented as any in the NFL, but of course, Jay Fiedler had the broken thumb, and things just kind of got away from that team at the end of the season, but still, I believe that team was built the right way for that era of football, and even though it didn't work out, good process over good results, right? That's the theme, that's the idea here. So you jump back to present day and Miami's recent drafting ranks in the top half of the league from that pro football focus graphic from at PFF underscore Moo on Twitter. And very fittingly, that graphic goes from 2016 all the way back to 2006, just one year prior to Chris Greer being appointed as the director of college scouting for the Miami Dolphins. And it basically looks at the data points in terms of what the team should be expected to draft at that particular spot in the draft compared to what they were able to get with on-field performance from those players. And the Dolphins rank 12th in that regard. They're around teams like the Patriots, Saints, Vikings, the Cowboys, the Ravens, some of the better teams in the league over that stretch, the Dolphins were drafting in that same neighborhood. So kudos to Chris Greer for identifying those players among his scouting staff to get the Dolphins to draft positively over that decade-long period. So now we've established that having the most picks is obviously a great thing to have, a distinct advantage, but the part of the numbers game you want to get right, which I believe we have proven here as well on this podcast, is that if you have the picks, it doesn't matter unless you get the picks right. And again, Greer has been with Miami since 2003, and he was the director of college scouting starting in 2007 before his 2016 promotion to general manager. And quantifying draft pick success It's not a black and white operation, a black and white project, but Pro Bowls and second contracts, I think, are an effective measure of how well early round picks perform, but also how many players that were selected on day three produced 500 plus snaps in a season because rotational players, special teamers, these guys are crucial for deep playoff runs and surviving the injury bug that hits every single year in the NFL and just producing a 53-man roster that can compete and fulfill the next man up mentality. So playing half 
half of the offense or defenses or special team snaps symbolizes a player's impact on that given year and using that 1,000 snap baseline because most teams play 1,000 snaps, give or take a couple hundred here or there. So a 500 snap player is to be considered to me a significant contributor and you remove the 2019 draft class from the sample size because they just not enough evidence, a too small of a sample size for those guys. So we go back five years and this goes two years prior to when Chris Greer was officially announced as the general manager of the Miami Dolphins. So there are two years where he was the director of college scouting in the study. We go back five years. The Dolphins had 38 draft picks over those five years, just under eight draft picks per year. And we're talking about pro bowlers, second contract players, and 500 snap takers. And we're using pro bowls as the top distinction and anything the player requires after that does not get included. So for instance, you have a player that made the pro bowl. We're not going to put him on the second contract column and the 500 snap column together because we only want to count for that player one single time. We also used Pro Bowls or second contracts with other teams as a nod to the drafter because we're talking about Chris Greer's ability to draft players here, not what happens after they've been selected by the Miami Dolphins. So you go back through 2018 through 2014, five Pro Bowlers on that list, eight second contract players, and seven 500 snap takers. So that gives you a grand total of 20 out of 38 in terms of significant contributors, which gives you a batting average of around 526 over that 2014 to 2018 period. So the Dolphins hitting well over 500 in that period under Chris Greer. And we heard Howie Roseman talk about batting 600 just in the first round alone is successful. So to be successful on 52.5% of your draft picks from rounds one through seven, that's quite a feather in the cap of Chris Greer and his staff and shows you how Miami got into the top half of the league in that draft success category from pro football focus. And of course, you're always going to hear Chris Greer deflect praise for his work. This is a collaboration and he'll be the first one to tell you that. It involves Brian Flores and his staff. It involves Marvin Allen and the college scouting and Reggie McKenzie and the entirety of the Dolphins college scouting staff and coaching staff providing input here for the Dolphins draft picks. But based on that five-year snapshot and Miami's bevy of draft picks this year, the Oz, the math says that adding multiple cornerstones and significant contributors to the roster this April, Miami's odds at doing that are among the league's best. And on the topic of the draft and being just six weeks away now, I saw several more mock drafts published this last week. Let's go ahead and do a roundup of some of the game's heaviest hitters and their recent mock drafts, drafts that were published in the last week. And we start with the heaviest of all hitters, NFL Network and NFL.com's Daniel Jeremiah and his mock 2.0. He went one round and he stayed very familiar with what you've seen in a lot of the mock drafts out there with the Dolphins' fifth overall selection, Tua Tungavailoa, the Alabama junior quarterback. The blurb is simple and to the point. If Tua's medical reports come back clean, he won't get out of the top five. So Jeremiah has the Dolphins going quarterback at number five. They come back at number 18 later on in the first round and give Tua his college teammate and receiver, Henry Ruggs III, and Jeremiah notes it would be fun to watch Ruggs reunite with Tua to ignite that offense. And you'll notice around draft Twitter and other spots alike, there has been quite a bit of an argument lately about who is receiver one. And Henry Ruggs has kind of inserted himself into that discussion among his teammate, Jerry Judy and Oklahoma's CD Lamb. One of my favorite stats on Henry Ruggs is that he caught touchdowns or scored touchdowns, I should say, on nearly 25% of his career college touchdown or touches, I should say. So instant offense at the college level there. Jeremiah hits the nail on the head with the explosive element that Henry Ruggs and his 4-2-9-40 would add to the receiving core. 
Rounding out Jeremiah's mock draft here, number 26 overall, the USC offensive tackle, Austin Jackson. And I had a chance to talk to Austin Jackson at his combine availability. Really cool story about him. He donated some bone marrow to his sister last offseason and essentially had to skip all of his offseason workouts because he was recovering from that and couldn't really properly work out. So he felt like he was playing catch up throughout the year, but his tape would suggest otherwise because he's a very good tackle prospect there. Just 20 years of age. Jeremiah says Jackson is well-liked around the league. Let's go ahead and jump over to Chad Reuter's mock draft here. And he went big. He went for three rounds on this mock. So kudos to him for doing that. He has the Dolphins trading up from that fifth spot overall to get to number four, a one-spot jump to go with the Giants to select Oregon senior quarterback Justin Herbert. He says Miami needs a quarterback. Herbert's starter caliber arm and mobility impressed scouts at the Combine. Moving up one spot to hold off other potential Herbert suitors is not an unusual move. He then cites the Bears going up one spot to get Mitchell Trubisky a couple years ago. And just to give a little bit of input on this, Dave Gettleman has never traded down from his spot in the draft. So doing this would be the first time he ever has with the New York Giants. So Chad Reuter has the Dolphins going up from five to four to get Justin Herbert. And they come back with the 18th pick in the draft and take a familiar face. Austin Jackson out of USC, the same player that Daniel Jeremiah had going 26 overall to the Miami Dolphins. We come back here at pick 26, a new face on the board here. Jonathan Taylor, the running back from Wisconsin, a junior elite level production, had a great combine workout. Reuter writes, the Dolphins invest one of the picks they received in the Laramie Tunzel trade in Taylor, who ran a blistering 4.39 second 40-yard dash at 226 pounds and caught the ball extremely well in the drills in Indianapolis at the scouting combine. We now jump ahead to the second round of the draft. Dolphins have their quarterback, their offensive tackle, and their running back from Chad Reuter's mock draft. And Miami comes back at pick 39 and takes LSU junior safety Grant Delpit, who falls out of the first round in this mock draft. And then Miami has no second round pick at 56 because they traded it to the Giants for the Justin Herbert trade. The Giants in that spot take Leaky Fotu, the defensive tackle out of Utah. Going forward to the third round of this mock draft, the Dolphins pick at number 70 overall here, and they keep this pick and they use it on Ben Barch, the St. John's guard who has jumped up draft board since a good senior bowl, had a good combine. He's a name that has been rising from a small school ranks there at St. John's. So the Dolphins in Chad Reuter's mock draft get Justin Herbert, they get Austin Jackson, Jonathan Taylor, they get Ben Barch and Grant Delpit to round out their first five picks on the first two days of the draft. Let's change media outlets here and go over to rotoworld.com and Josh Norris, who takes a completely different direction than the two NFL.com writers and Jeremiah and Reuter. And to me, that's the point of doing mock drafts to try to give multiple scenarios, to give fans and teams alike an idea of how things could play out come draft day. Taking these mock drafts way too seriously just doesn't do anybody any good, but it always helps to get a feel for who could be on the board in particular spots. And so Norris has the Dolphins taking a linebacker number five overall. Clemson's Isaiah Simmons. If you watched the combine, you knew who he was. If you watched college football this year, you knew who he was. Here's the blurb. Players like Simmons aren't common. He fluidly flips from rushing the passer on one play to working as a single high safety the next. Versatility is only real if the player wins from each spot. Otherwise, he's just losing from multiple alignments. And because a player like Simmons is rare, it is fair to wonder if most teams can really be creative enough to maximize his skills. I trust 
the Dolphins can. And that last note in there is why I love this mock draft because he mentions Brian Flores' ability to get the most out of these players and Josh Boyer getting the call to defensive coordinator and the staff that Flores has established. Now, Patrick Graham is no longer here in Miami. He, of course, with the Giants now. But last year at training camp, he talked about how when he draws up plays on his board, he no longer uses free safety or defensive tackle designations. He just uses X's and O's because this Dolphins defense doesn't really have position distinctions. And that's a Brian Flores thing. And Josh Norris recognizes that in this mock draft. So Isaiah Simmons, number five overall, he then comes back at pick number 18 and the Dolphins get their quarterback here with Jordan Love from Utah State. He talks about how this draft does not feature trades, but he fully expects the Dolphins to move up to acquire the quarterback they want. And Norris notes, it was difficult to have a conversation at the combine where Love's name did not come up. And that is not from the media end. It's from NFL teams who seem to be attracted to his playmaker mentality and his will to create something out of nothing. And then rounding out the draft, another familiar name. He gets checked off in all three of these mock drafts. Offensive tackle Austin Jackson out of USC, the 20-year-old high-character kid, elite-level athlete. So far, Norris says, the Dolphins drafted a truly versatile defensive playmaker, a quarterback to develop, and now can add to their offensive line. Jackson's initial position might not always be perfect, but he constantly worked to recover and has the athleticism to match. So it is officially mock draft season. We'll be doing more of these on the podcast for sure. I am certain. We are just one week away from free agency kicking off. Next week, we'll have all that information for you guys available, including a primer this week talking about kind of the behind the scenes of how contracts get done and what goes into contracts and free agency. We'll have that on the Drive Time Podcast. We'll break down all the free agents the Dolphins do bring in next week and beyond in free agency. A busy, busy time of year, an exciting time of year as your 2020 Dolphins are under construction and will be built throughout the course of the next few months. As for this edition of the Drive Time Podcast, that is going to be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts from. Go ahead and download, rate, review, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Follow the Dolphins at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Audible and the Fish Tank Podcast, rounding out our network here of Miami Dolphins Podcasts and MiamiDolphins.com for all your written and video and audio content on your Miami Dolphins. Till next time, fins up.